the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Portions of the following program have been pre-recorded. I know a place where we can go to lay the troubles down, eating your soul. I know a place where mercy flows. Take the stains, make it wider than snow. Like a tide, it is rising up deep inside a current that moves and makes you come alive this is Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. We're going down to the river, down to the river, down to the river to pray. Yeah, yeah. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. I'm so glad that you're able to join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls and answer your questions about the things you care the most about. We ask about God and the historical Jesus. We talk about the Bible. We talk about worldviews and world religions. But from time to time, I have authors, artists, guests, people who are making a difference in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God and joining me is Dr. Joshua Ferris. He, of course, is a Humboldt experienced scholar fellow. He, uh, you can find out a whole lot about Joshua Ferris at joshuaferris.com. And I want to say that right off the bat. And he's, uh, written, blogged, talks about all kinds of different things. He's written articles, are Adams conscious debate with Philip Goff. The list goes on and on. But Josh, I'm so glad to have you on the program. Hey, good to be with you, Jano. Thank you. Well, one of the things I want to, you know, it's been a while since you've been on. For people who are unfamiliar with Joshua Ferris, tell it, and and again, your, your area of expertise, if you will, is the soul. Um, tell us about what prompted your curiosity and your commitment to pursuing an academic career surrounding the subject of the soul. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll try to keep it really uh, brief. brief. I think in my seminary education, I became really fascinated with the question of, well, the, the general question, uh, what it means to be a human and, mm-hmm. and in, um, in theological courses and one particular theological course, uh, which focused on the human being, we began asking all sorts of questions about what it means to be a human. Are we bodies, and souls, bodies or souls? Are we, uh, what does it mean to be gendered male and female? How does mm-hmm. this, uh, relate to God's program in, in creation and in salvation? And, uh, so it became really fascinating to me and I wanted and I began to think about this um, and think about, well, what has become, what has been lost in some of the theological discussions as of late mm-hmm. regarding the person as, as an ensouled being, something that we, that many throughout church history just took for granted. They just took it as this is the way it is. We are ensouled beings. We're not just our bodies. We're something more than our bodies. We transcend our bodies in important ways. And that sort of narrative has 
shifted um, certainly in um, the wider academic discussions, but even in theology where you would expect it to be uh, hospitable to the soul. Sure, a given. That has changed. Yeah, that we don't just simply have a soul. We, in, in a real sense, I, at least my understanding of the Bible, we are a soul. In other yeah. words, we're not just a a a. a, a, a and, and uh, human, uh, we're not just muscle tissue, uh, brain matter. Th- that that there is something that makes us distinctly us, that we could call a soul. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, there's something. There's something beyond the sort of tangible. There's something beyond the sort of mechanism that we see in much of modern philosophy that has, uh, in many ways, taken over kind of the the perspectives of of many of the scientists today talking about what it means to be human, uh, many of the philosophers today. There's something more than, um, you know, just being mere machinery and mechanisms that can be triggered in certain ways when we, s- say, increase our dopamine levels using certain drugs or, or by um, manipulating neurons in some way, by, uh, uh, you know, um, triggering certain parts of the brain or even by uh, changing our biochemistry or even uh, biohacking our, our genetics or something like that. There's something more that is even stable, more stable than yeah. our biology. Yeah, even and even what you're talking about, I, I want to get to the subject of dementia, but you've sent me so many great articles. But even our conversation right now reminds me of a of a statement that a very famous Israeli scholar, Yuval Harari, who's a philosophical materialist, he's an atheist. He basically suggested, basically told the world that he believes that human beings are hackable creatures that we are organic biological entities capable of being hacked, manipulated, and directed. Yeah, he has said that, and others have said that as well. And it's um, and and I think many do believe that. There there is some plausibility in the sense that obviously our minds and our brains are interconnected. They interface in some way when our brains are experiencing um, uh, certain things just at a basic level. When I hit my head, my physical head on the do- uh, the doorpost or on my car, uh, when I uh, reach down to get something out of the glove compartment, it affects my conscious states of awareness. So in obvious ways, there's a, a really tight relationship between my brain, my body, and my mind, or my soul. And, uh, and, and so there's a lot coming out right now about to what extent that is the case, and to what extent can we manipulate the body so that we can um, enhance our powers as human beings. And certainly Yuval Harari is in that sort of school of thought where he thinks the potential is unlimited, that mm-hmm. um, Science has given us so much already, and we can point to all sorts of examples, but it's unlimited in its potential of what it can bring about to make better or enhance the powers that humans have. Yeah, it's also very, very fascinating. You posted an article at the ChristianPost.com. You had a title, into, uh, What Dementia Teaches Us About the Soul. And obviously... Um, 
part of the scientific issues of neurology and all of that other kinds of stuff. Um, for the philosophical materialist, they would say that uh, dementia is just the, the disintegration of the biological unit. But you point out that maybe dementia will tell us something way more important, not just about being a physical creature, but being having a soul. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think um, there's something fascinating going on in recent studies of dementia, as well as Alzheimer's, similar studies that uh, parallel and um, other um, biological deteriorations that if we were purely animals or we were purely physical beings, as Yuval Harari suggests, as well as many others, then there are certain things that we would expect or anticipate as a result. But in fact, when we look at certain cases, concrete cases of, of real live individuals uh, that live with dementia, <clears throat> then we realize something else is going on, something unexpected. Certainly dementia tells us a lot about the brain and we have lots of data on that that's fascinating. But mm -hmm. there's other things that are actually going on that I, in my article, I'm trying to I'm trying to press the point. It's actually yeah. pointing us beyond to something transcendent, something like a soul that the ancients believed that as Christians, I believe we cherish and we hold dear. And um, this was, uh, I had been thinking about this a while, but one of the fascinating books that really clued me in was Trisha Williams. What happens to faith when mm -hmm. Christians get dementia? Yeah. That what a great uh, thought. Yeah. Yeah. So she um, she gave some concrete cases. She's a practitioner herself who cares for uh, people in dementia who have dementia. And she uh, she has she lays out several concrete uh, case studies in her her. It's more of a practical sort of book. And in it, she draws out some of the implications. What's interesting in her book, though, is she doesn't draw out the explicit implication of the soul. And that's something that I try to bring out. Right, right. And we're going to talk more about this with, with Joshua Ferris when we come back. And again, you can go, I would really encourage you to go to ChristianPost.com, read his article, What Dementia Teaches Us About the Soul. We'll have just a, a little bit more conversation when we come back. This is Gina Geraci. Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Dr. Joshua Ferris, and I'm so pleased to have him on the program. He's posts in a number of different venues, and he's written an article at ChristianPost.com, and I would just encourage you to read this article. But as we were alluding to in the earlier uh, segment, Josh, you, you wrote this article. You, it's, it was very personal to you. You talk about your own um, family member, and, and, and you defined dementia as a term that refers to the process of intellectual and mental deterioration. And, and, and you, when we went to the break, you were, you were talking about um, Catherine Applegate and some things that she's written uh, and, and some of the implications of what happens to faith when Christians get dementia. And it prompted you to think about um, notions of identity. And I want you to just continue with, 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 with what you were talking about. 
Yeah, good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think uh, the question um, that many of these concrete studies raise uh, that uh, people like John Swinton and Yes. And uh, Williams as well as Applegate raised in terms of uh, these concrete cases where the, they're in, engaging with these uh, dementia uh, patients is something about the question of personal identity that's close to all of us. And, and many of us, have, especially if we've encountered or we, we've had a loved one who's gone through something like this or something akin to it. Sure, we cognitive impairment well, of they, some sort. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Are, are they the same person? Is this the same person anymore? And in a real sense, that's an important, that's a vitally important question, of course. I mean, at one level, you could say, yeah, they're different. And uh, anyone um, who experiences something that drastic, you can say um, their demeanor's different. Maybe they're unhappy. Uh, they're unaware of themselves. There's all sorts of things that make them different at one level. At a deeper level, though, when we press into it, we begin to ask further questions about, well, what is uh, at stake in, 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 in this question of identity? And is this person truly the same person that they were before? And um, in the case of dementia, especially early, mid to late dementia, mid to late dementia, mm -hmm. you realize that they're almost not there anymore. And so Tricia Williams is, is engaging with patients that are even mid leading to late dementia, and they're losing the concept of themselves, the very concept which memories are vital to our identity and how we have shared connection with others. Really important, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I need memories to, to live in this life and to engage in my familial relationships. Um, it's just basic. And if I lose that, there's a real sense in which I've lost myself. That's very practical. The philosophers talk about this notion as well, how memories are vital to uh, maintaining a conception of personal identity. So is the person not there anymore? And um, what these cases actually signify, it seems to me, is that there is something unexpected going on that even when we talk about the brain and cognitive deterioration, um, there is something undergirding it and underneath it that is even deeper that makes sense of the person's continuity with his or her previous um, self where they were aware of themselves. There is genuinely a person there and there are signs that's, that point us beyond this. And here's the other really important point uh, that I, I try to hone in on. And that is that if we are animal beings, if we are purely material beings in the way that somebody like Yuval Harari, Harari would believes, say, or yeah. many others. Yeah, we would expect that with severe cognitive impairment, where brain the brain is, is severely deteriorating, we would expect simultaneously, in all cases, we would expect a, a, a decline, in um, intellectual conscious decline in the person as well. But what we see with these dementia cases is, in fact, actually, when it comes to their religious heritage, their faith identity persists. They re recall things. Now, it doesn't mean that they can always recall or articulate it in uh, a clear manner, but they remember things that otherwise they wouldn't, uh, uh, the other things that they don't remember. They might not even remember what their name is, but what they do remember is they remember 
um, experiences that they've had with God. They feel a heightened, um, these are particularly, these cases are dealing with believers or uh, mm-hmm. evangelical believers. Uh, that's an important contextual piece. They remember and their sense of God is heightened in their, uh, in, in their experience of dementia, mid leading to late dementia. They can recount songs and hymns. Maybe they hum it. Maybe they forget some of the words, but they're humming it. And it's all reflective of deeper patterns, I suggest, that are in the soul that if they are purely animalistic or material beings, you wouldn't expect that to happen. You would expect to decline in all cases. But when it comes to faith and matters of their own religious identity, that seems to shine through and sometimes um, in more powerful ways than it otherwise did. It's as if God is present to them, comforting them in a way that would be unusual. So you have these concrete cases that somebody like Tricia Williams is pointing out when she's engaging with these dementia patients that, that suggests something other, otherworldly, something other than what their uh, normal encounters in the world are. And even when they forget who they are, they don't forget who God is. They don't forget in many cases also what church they came from, or at least their their evangelical heritage that they are a part of. So there's something about the nature of the religious community that they're a part of that seems to shine through, even in this case, when they're experiencing this severe cognitive decline, not modest cognitive decline, but severe cognitive decline, where their brain is just not functioning properly. They still have this faith identity. Yeah, in your article, you say something incredible, at least from my perspective. You talk about William's studies, and then you make the statement in your article. You say William's studies suggest that spiritual development continues even after memory loss, and more, you say, that one's development stays with him or her even when the memories fade. I found that amazing. It reminded me of... of, um, I just said his name, uh, John, uh, uh, John, Bo- amazing grace, amazing grace. Yeah. The, yeah. the author of amazing grace. Um, he, when he was old, he became b- almost blind and, and started experiencing severe memory loss. And he basically said, there are two things I remember that I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. But the other thing in, in this article that you point to, uh, you know, you talk about redeemed identity, but you, you, you make a, a mention of liturgy. You know, obviously there are people who have a high church background and a low church background, but you say something really interesting about the rhythms of liturgy and to me, this sounds even like a case for even when people are experiencing dementia or cognitive impairment, that you not cease and desist whatever liturgical routines were a part of their life. What do you think about that for the person who's in assisted care or, or a memory center about going to church and participating in liturgy? Yeah, that's Fascinating. Yeah, this is a big question, and and it, it, it this this will change or orient how we engage with dementia patients in ways that maybe we haven't uh, in the past. But I think it's vitally important um, that we continue with these rhythms. So, whether you're high church or low church, liturgy sounds like a high church term, but 
Not necessarily. I mean, we all have, in a sense, a kind of liturgy. We have, in other words, we have worshipful rhythms in life. Uh, as Christians, hopefully, you have some rhythms of so, how you partake of the Bible and pray. So you're talking about worship routines. Would that be an appropriate way of thinking about it? Worship routines? Yeah, sure. That's right. That's right. Liturgy could, maybe that could distract people. I, I like the term, but uh, worshipful routi- uh, routines is, is, is one way of thinking about it. Uh, as Christians, we have worshipful routines, and these are vital to sustaining us in the religious community, helping us to experience God in a daily life. We all have routines in our life, and if we're religious, then we have some religious routines that inform our daily living. And it's vital to keep that going even with um, when you're a dementia patient or in your uh, late in life. I, re- I, I mentioned my, my grandmother for a, an important reason in the beginning of the article. Uh, one of the things, um, she didn't experience like dementia or any severe cognitive decline. She did experience some. It, late in her uh, in her life, when she was approaching death, uh, she was blind and she had some cognitive um, impairment. impairment. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, but what stood through and persisted was something that she did regularly in her life, even when she was cleaning or cooking for the family. She was singing songs, old hymns that she uh, regularly sung in church and in her life. Amazing Grace and other uh, hymns that were dear to her. She would hum well, them. I, and this I don't, is something she did later. I, I, I don't want to be too intrusive, but can you stay with me one sure. more segment? <laughs> yes. My guest is Joshua Harris, and uh, you can find out more about him at, at his website. We'll tell you where that is. The Word. 94.7 FM. The Word. This is Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. My guest, Dr. Joshua Ferris in he has done so much great work on the soul. He's posted um, several different articles all across uh, social media. But if I would encourage you to go to his website at www.joshuaferris, with an F-A-R-R-I-S dot com. And in this last segment, there were I, I'm sort of going to marry two different things together, Josh. And that is, you sent me a note. Um, it was an NPR um, podcast about people who have be, been doing research on how people perceive themselves in the present and then on how they perceive themselves in the future. But there was another element. There was the perception of the self. There was the perception of others. And then there was the perception of themselves in the future and and how that tells us something about the self but i want to marry that with another article that you sent me on transhuman projects because as people are doing greater and greater neurological research brain research um and that kind of research augmenting human um existence you you talk a little bit about how people are trying to augment the human experience, but you can't really augment the human soul. And so I just wanted you to just talk about some of the things you've been thinking about with those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on right now in terms of uh, the self and what we understand persons to be. And 
<clears throat> there is uh, uh, a lot of uh, work in sociology and psychology that's pushing this idea that we are purely social constructions. We right. are purely socially constructed selves. There is no uh, firm or stable continuity between yourself this time and yourself years and years ago, your previous selves. Um, there is no stable continuity there. And there was a recent, uh, as you alluded to, a recent fascinating discussion by Hal Hirschfeld, who's a psychologist, mm -hmm. uh, heavily uh, trained in brain science. And um, he argues, uh, it was on NPR as well as the TED Talk Radio, TED Radio mm -hmm. Hour. And he argues that, uh, well, basically we've had, we've been able to trace in terms of triggers uh, in the brain and um, how the brain uh tells us or informs us about how the the present self interacting with that brain relates to other selves as um, and he's the parallel that uh, that we have here signifies something important the fact that we uh, our brain registers different people as not ourselves but somebody else mm -hmm. is a parallel to how our brain registers us in relation to our future selves mm -hmm. that's fascinating and he thinks that based upon that that we have reason to believe that there is no robust continuity between the, pre the present self and a future self i think his study goes far way too far um mm -hmm. but I, but the what he's suggesting there is fascinating so the the discussion goes in a different direction obviously there's no christian represented in this discussion in right. fact there are uh gurus um new age gurus that are saying uh taking up this sort of line and saying yeah well we need to think about what we uh persons is is being social constructions and we need to be um think about what it means to ethically to treat our future selves mm -hmm. um, because basically we're treating somebody else in the future and we want to be good to them. Um, and um, in relation to this, there's this, there's this other conversation that you alluded to that parallels this discussion about the socially constructed self uh, regarding um, biological kind of manipulation and um, brain enhancements for the, the sake of, of making us, post-human or right. better humans, transhumans. Um, you might call it transhumanism, the transhuman projects. And it's all um, based upon or dependent upon uh, advanced science and technology, um, say biohacking and things of that sort, where we can actually manipulate the brain in ways to enhance the capacities of the brain. And that's where our future hope therein lies when we can do that, we can begin to um, uh, 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 understand the genome as well as the brain well enough that we can enhance human capacity beyond its uh, normal capacities in this life. And um, so that, that kind of discussion is um, surprisingly, well, at one level is surprising, at another is not. It's it's um, it's happening all around us. It's just permeating the culture in terms of um, what it means to be a self, and um, and what it means in light of these new brain technologies that can make us quote unquote better selves than we are now. But I think that's really missing something vital in the discussion mm -hmm. that we were picking up on before.
Yeah. And one of those, you, you wrote me a note and one sentence jumped out at me. Um, it was, we must orient ourselves to realize that all of life is God's. And, and, and in that simple sentence that you sent to me, I, I began to think about, you know, biological life, neurological life, um, the, the life that we're living, but then the, that there's such a thing as spirit life in the sense that Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. And that, that we're souls, but that for people who believe in that you're regenerated by the power of God's Holy Spirit, that you have a spiritual life, that there really is a transcendent spirit dimension that is a part of what it means to be a self. And, and that for our friends who are philosophical materialists or who, who doubt the existence of a supernatural soul, they can't even really think about this life in a full-orbed way. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they they can't. Yeah, they they have uh, these severe blinders on that they can only see a very small portion of reality. And um, the cases of dementia. What's fascinating about them is um, they uh, w- if people really confront the reality of of these these dementia patients, where they're in- experiencing heightened encounters with God, mm-hmm. and in in one sense. They're remembering their past, but they're not remembering. So uh, Tricia Williams talks about this, this idea of remembering but not remembering. You're remembering in a sense, right? You're not able to cognitively articulate it in a way that you and I are articulating things right now. You're not even able to articulate yourself. But nonetheless, you remember, you have felt kind of experiential memories that are traced by your singing of old hymns, humming Mm -hmm. old hymns that point to some faith identity that is present with you. And that is continuing um, that you are continuing with. Um, There's a sign that you are the self same person that is persisting. And that not only is persisting, but is persisting in relation to God and the faith community. And when they, uh, if these materialists, confront that material not only would they they would have they would ha- they would shot that uh that uh that brain deterioration is not actually um c- congruent or, or make sense of their experiences it, it would force them to raise the questions what is actually going on here and how can i even make sense of it in light of my materialism that humans are truly just animals in some sense complex animals even there's something transcendent about them spiritual even that endures there's something about the faith and identity that is not only a meaningful context in which we make sense of people in our life you know in our own lives but there's something about that identity that transcends the physical the biological the brain itself right yeah And I'm so appreciative of you coming on. And in this last moment, I just want to give people a chance to contact you, joshuaferris.com, joshuaferris.com. And, you know, your article made me think of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, who experiences cognitive impairment to a profound sense. And somehow, miraculously, his mind is restored to him. And he realizes that the God of the Bible is, in fact, God. But I thought... Keep up the good work, and thank you for the amazing contribution that you're making to the body of Christ. Thank you. 
My guest, Joshua Ferris, this is Gino Geraci. I'll be back with more when we come back. 947 FM, the word. Now, back to Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It was great having Dr. Joshua Ferris on the program and love to take your calls, 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. There's a lot of... Um, news going on and and as you go through the news cycle and you hear about breaking news like you know uh, Republican Chris Christie is suspending his presidential bid and and you know we're we're trying to keep up with the news one of the news things that was sort of like a flash a presence if you will in 2023 is this idea of a revival and some people have suggested that a real, genuine, spiritual outpouring of the Holy Spirit began to take place in 2023 and will continue to take place in this new year. And again, however you measure this revival, whether you're talking about groups of young people um, packing out uh, campus auditoriums, praying, singing, hearing the gospel, uh, turning to Christ. Um, it seems to me that there are literally tens of thousands of young people who are packing out churches, stadiums across the country. And there's a man named uh, Matt Brown. He's on Twitter. And uh, he is the founder of Think Eternity. And he recently shared on X, you know, used to be Twitter, that thousands of young people are ringing in the 2024 by passionately seeking God. And on his, uh, I, I'm looking at his Twitter account or his X account, if you will, and there's this massive audience. And so he, he shows 55,000 at Passion in Atlanta, 10,000 at CrossCon in Kentucky, 7,000 at the Crew National Gathering, 5,000 at Salt uh, Conference in Iowa, 13,500 um, at uh, Strength to Stand in Tennessee. This was a multiple series of events. In November of last year, 12,000 at Hearts on Fire in Tennessee, 7,000 at Extreme in Missouri. And again, you know, he says on, on his X, uh, on the Twitter X, it's hard for me to call Twitter X, but I guess I just really need to get used to it. Um, he says... On his X account, of course, there's no way to even begin to calculate the millions of people that gathered at local churches to seek God across the nation and worldwide. Also, countless churches are now calling their congregants to fast and pray at the beginning of the new year. And so um, there seems to be a hope, if you will, for revival. 
And in the past, I've talked a little bit about revival. And of course, when you're asking and you're answering the question, what is Christian revival? Does the Bible teach that there will be, bluntly, a worldwide revival before the end times? And it depends, again, on how you're asking, answering, and defining the term revival. So if by revival you mean a spiritual reawakening in which a church or community is brought out of a state of dormancy or stagnation that results in changed lives and then a renewed pursuit of personal righteousness. In one sense, revival can only happen among believers since it's a restoration to life in common usage. However, the word revival often can refer to large-scale responses to evangelism where people hear the gospel, believe the gospel, obey what the Bible says. So does the Bible contain specific prophecies about a worldwide revival breaking out? And I think that that's a tough question, and maybe we should save it for Tough Question Tuesday. So how do we even begin to talk about that question and answer that question? Well, I think there's a yes component and there's a no component. In what sense? The Bible does predict times of turning to the Lord but probably not in the sense that many people expect. So biblically speaking, the end times is that period of time that we we might think of. It's the end times begins with the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus on Calvary's cross, and the resurrection of Jesus, and then the ascension of Jesus and his return. And so I think it's safe to say, using that definition, that we're in the end times. Remember, at least from my perspective, the end times begins upon the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and then it continues in the first, second, third century. Fast forward um, through the Middle Ages, um, fast forward past the Age of Enlightenment, to the pre-industrial age and the industrial age, and then what we might even call the technological age. And so in that sense, we are living in the final dispensation before the day of the Lord occurs. Now, when I use that term, the day of the Lord, What I mean by that is a day of judgment, profound judgment. And so there are predictions of revival 
through through three periods in the church age and the tribulation period and the millennium. And so end times revival take place in the church age. They will take place apparently in the tribulation. They will take place during the millennial kingdom. And then there seems to be a final end times revival. And so the, this might be some of the things that we're going to be talking about um, when we come back. If you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. do want to let you know that I, you know, weather permitting, I know that we've got an Arctic front that's making its way to the front range where we're going to experience, according to at least some of the weather um, prognosticators that I've been following, that there's that there's going to be an Arctic blast. Um, I guess later on this week, some people are expecting, dare we say, 12 below zero. And where during one of the days this weekend, the high is zero. We had these kind of Arctic flashes um, a year ago last Christmas, and it was brutal. So hopefully we're going to, um, but as you know, here in Denver, Front Range, if you don't like the weather, stick around. It's about to change. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be back taking your calls, answering your questions. 303-873-1935. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 